you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It is a pleasure to be back, Paul. We've got a great show coming up featuring Jonathan Tepper of Variant Perception. And we'll be talking to him about his book, The Myth of Capitalism, which has had extraordinary endorsements from names like Ken Rogoff, Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton, Professor Scott Galloway and Kyle Bass. Uh, we're going to revisit uh, Jonathan's view on the Australian housing market, talk about his fascinating book, uh, and we might wrap it up with a bit of a chat about what's going on in global markets because it is busy. But first, a very quick announcement. Um, we'll be doing Devils and Details live and unplugged and possibly even a little bit unruly on November 27th at the Ivy in Sydney. The event kicks off at 6.30pm and there'll be drinks and canapes and lots of other like-minded people to chat to. We'll have a range of panellists. Uh, it's a pretty stellar lineup uh, with guests including Joe Masters from ANZ, Pete Wargent from Alan Wargent, Cameron Kuscher from CoreLogic, Laura Fitzsimons, who's uh, Vice President at JP Morgan, Con Michalakis, who's the CIO at Statewide Super, James Whelan from VFS Group, Stephen Kukulis, and Eleanor Cray from uh, Saxo Capital Markets. Tickets are 50 bucks. We do have a limited number. They are selling, so jump on to Humanitix uh, and search for Business Insider and you'll find us. Uh, we'd love to see you. Now, on with the show. Uh, as I mentioned, our guest is Jonathan Tepper. He's economist and founder of London-based advisory firm Variant Perception. He joins us on the line from London. G'day, Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure. Many of our listeners uh, will recall Jonathan from back in 2016 when he featured on a pretty infamous episode of 60 Minutes. Uh, where he was traipsing around Sydney, uh, pretending to be John Hempton's partner, talking to real estate agents, um, and very clearly establishing, I think, that there were some very questionable checks on uh, people's incomes and uh, their, you know, their household cash flow from lenders. Fast forward two and a half years to where we are now, and it's very clear there has been a massive clampdown on lending standards in Australian banks. Uh, bank share uh, prices are a lot weaker with them when they were than when they were when when Jonathan was uh, in market talking about this. And this reporting season, uh, we're seeing significant declines in full year profit uh, from ANZ and, and NAB that reported today. NAB down more than fourteen percent uh, profit um, this year. But John, some of the scenarios you outlined around that time were pretty catastrophic, uh, including the Australian dollar potentially going to forty cents. Um, so far, notwithstanding the data continues to deteriorate, uh, it still looks fairly or orderly. Um, uh, do you th still think it's going to be a disaster? Uh, uh, yes, I do. Um, Howard Marks said that being uh, too early is the same as being wrong. And uh, to that extent, I was wrong. Um, quite clearly, after John Hampton and I uh, went around and, and did our, our digging, and then I, I wrote the, the report uh, for, for Variant, uh, lending uh, continued apace in, in Sydney, Melbourne, and other places, and prices continued to rise. But the, the central uh, thesis of our report, uh, I think, has been borne out by the Royal Commission. Uh, and if anything, um, I would say that they simply touched on the tip of the iceberg. Um, there's the, the lending standards and it has been very, very lax. The conduct by the banks has been atrocious across the board in Australia. Um, we, we can obviously that strangely ties into the, the book that I've written in terms of oligopolies and you know how they might behave. But 
What's what's fascinating is that uh, the lending continued and therefore prices went up. Now that they're tightening the standards and uh, not lending, uh, we're clearly seeing a contraction or or close to contraction in, in loan growth. And now you're seeing a decline in house prices in Sydney in particular, uh, starting to see that in, in Melbourne. And then obviously within pockets uh, in Sydney, Melbourne, you're seeing sort of 10 to 20 percent declines, particularly at the very high end, you know, where prices had been the, the frothiest. But what I pointed out in the original report uh, was that. It, it, the high end clearly is is problematic, but many people are are, are in fact quite wealthy. The the bigger problem is when you start driving inland in, in Sydney, for example, or, or or Melbourne, and you're you're far away from the CBD, and you're you're really dealing with sort of you know what are working class or lower middle class uh, areas where prices are, are wildly inflated with the increase in supply. And what you're seeing in Australia right now is a downturn in uh, building permits in the sense that they, they peaked. Um, they, they had a rebound after we wrote the report, uh, which was slightly unexpected. Generally, you see a huge surge and then a downturn. But now, you know, you're seeing, in fact, a big downturn. And uh, uh, Guy DeBell from the RBA pointed out, uh, you know, th- this week, which you know we pointed out in our report, that the Australian economy is highly geared towards construction, um, very much like Spain, Ireland, and the the United States. And so, the uh, scenario that I outlined obviously was uh, too early, but. When construction does turn down, that has a massive multiplier effect. Building permits are the best, longest leading indicator of economic activity. That's why it goes into the OECD leading indicators. It goes into our own leading indicators at variant perception. And when the credit accelerator turns, obviously the entire sort of finance of you know finance, insurance, real estate, the fire sector turns down. And uh, if you look at previous recessions globally, uh, where the Australian dollar has traded, uh, it has traded down towards 40. And I think that if you combine a domestic housing downturn with a sort of a, a global slowdown, particularly one that's sort of China focused and uh, dealing with the demand for commodities, I think it would be uh, not at all unlikely. And furthermore, I think it's a good thing um, if you remember. Uh, Ireland and Spain during the uh, downturns that they had were really well, Spain, trapped. Spain was the one that you um, that you forecast, I think, back in uh, 2008, 2009, the implosion of the yes. uh, housing prices there, yeah. And one of the reasons why I thought Spain's uh, downturn would be horrific was that they did not have the peseta, the currency, to be able to uh, bear any of the brunt of adjustment. Um, the Australian dollar will be able to um, be a shock absorber you know, from a macroeconomic standpoint, maintain nominal GDP stability. So ultimately, things are going to be much better in Australia than they were in Spain or Ireland. But uh, you know, I think the currency is going to be one of the release valves for that. Yeah. Um, so how, do you have a base case uh, for where the Australian dollar will be over the next uh, 12 months? Uh, so I, I think point forecasts aren't particularly uh, useful. I would have to revisit uh, some of the, the models, but it, it, it would be uh, lower than it is here. Um, it, the Australian dollar currently appears cheap on some metrics. But uh, if you're looking at, for example, uh, China, the China leading index, uh, which we have, does a great job of leading 
the Australian dollar, that's pointing down. Um, you know, this morning you've got PMIs from most of the Asian uh, countries, and those have turned negative. China's close to 50. So quite clearly, the tightening of financial conditions in China is having uh, a knock-on effect. And uh, the, the Australian dollar is certainly one of the uh, cyclical global bellwethers. Okay, look, let's talk about your book, The Myth of Capitalism. Uh, I've been reading it this week. It's a great read. Uh, well done. Look, your central premise um, is that while capitalism is predicated on this, on competition um, uh, being able to support a lot of the um, brutalities of capitalism, what capitalism actually does, or, or the, the, the capitalist systems that we live in, um, what they really do is, is actually create a lot of oligopolies and even monopolies, right? Um, now, the book is packed full of real, very clear, practical examples. Um, and uh, look, one of the best of the, those examples that you use to explain um, how there, where there appears to be competition, uh, but actually you've got uh, oligopolies, uh, is in the airline industry. Um, now, uh, you go into great deal, detail with this in the US, um, but it's obviously relevant to us here in Australia where we've really only got sort of a couple of airlines. Um, but maybe you can take us, uh, start with the airlines and, and, um, and use that to explain um, uh, how you think about these oligopolies. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the airlines are quite interesting because they involve a central character in, in the book, uh, Warren Buffett. And uh, if you remember, I think it was in 03 that he gave an interview and, and said that uh, capitalism would have been much better off if someone had uh, shot down uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright when they were taking flight, you know, and uh, Kitty Hawk uh, when so you know the, the first plane flight. And so, you know, he, he had fairly strong views on how horrible the airline industry uh, was. But what's very interesting is that if you fast forward a few years, uh, there was a wave of mergers in the United States that were uh, allowed by uh, Obama's Department of Justice and FTC, which you know in previous decades probably wouldn't have been allowed. But the industry went from essentially uh, about n nine players down to four. And so when you think of the United States, the, the U.S. is a very big country. And what often happens is that you have what are known as fortress hubs. So uh, American controls Charlotte, uh, United controls Houston. And so you have the appearance of intense competition, whereas, in fact, if you're uh, within a sort of catchment area, uh, you know, uh, of, of a few hundred miles, you really only have one choice when it comes to getting anywhere. And what's fascinating is that Warren Buffett, once this, this merger wave happened, he then became an, uh, a shareholder, not of one airline, but of all airlines, you know, so essentially he was making a bet on the industry rather than making a bet on a particular company. And it, when, when you look at the uh, pricing for airlines, you, you had deregulation in the United States in the uh, very late 70s, early 80s, and the prices uh, continued to fall. So competition was was fairly intense. Uh, there was uh, quite a lot of service that was offered. And, you know, maybe it wasn't the greatest. You could argue it's not the greatest right now either. But the, the prices did fall dramatically. And that, that's the, the fruit of competition. Once the mergers went through, then prices started to go up and uh, airlines became very profitable. So you can see that one of the reasons why the lack of competition uh, is desired by CEOs and by Buffett is that it gives pricing power over the consumer. And you see that in, in a lot of different industries. So uh, one of the uh, perfect examples of, uh, with Buffett starting off with local newspapers. 
um, which is, you know, uh, a classic example of, uh, you know, in, in a lot of towns, a monopoly in, in the United States. Absolutely. So if you look at uh, Buffett's history of, of investing, uh, he, he really, people talk about moats, he talks about moats. And so people think of this as like the low cost provider or intangible brands. But if you start looking at what he actually did, uh, generally, he was looking for uh, monopolies or duopolies, or in the worst of all cases, you know, in his mind, uh, where he couldn't get an outright monopoly, he would go for oligopolies. And local newspapers in the United States up until the advent of the internet were, were really very much local monopolies on ad dollars. And, uh, you know, if, if you own the local paper, you know, everyone got the paper and uh, he would often go into towns that might have had two. He'd run one out of business and then he was he had the only paper, you know, doing the, the daily week and then the, the weekend uh, read. He, he owned uh, Moody's. Uh, so if you remember during the subprime crisis, the all of the sort of terrible shitty bonds were rated by Moody's or S&P and given sort of, you know, a triple A AAA rating, even if they were toxic. And the, the the one of the reasons why they were able to do that was that there there's a law in the United States was passed in 1976, which essentially created a special legal category for ratings agencies. And so some of these moats that I, I talk about in the book are, are not natural or inevitable. There, there might be a, a local reason why a town might only support one newspaper, but there's no reason why you and I couldn't set up a rating agency to do a better job rating bonds. But you can't really do that because the government passed a law basically creating a sort of nationally recognized statistical rating organization. Uh, if you think of Australia, for example, you know, um, g getting a bank uh, started and regulated is very difficult, right? And so you've seen almost no new banks uh, in the United States since Dodd-Frank was passed. In Australia, you see that the uh, debt uh, and the funding for small versus large banks is very different. There is the idea that there's an implicit subsidy from being big. And so you can see that the and I, I make this point in the book that regulation plays a very important role in uh, dictating size and the structure of, of industries. So uh, some of this is uh, crony capitalism, lobbying, the extent of regulation, and, and it all ties into that. And, uh, you know, clearly Buffett has been a, a master of, of picking his industries. One of the things you mentioned in there was, that um, you know, how local news was how, how local newspapers had these monopolies or oligopolies uh, in larger towns, um, but you know that was until the advent of the internet, right? Um, and I want to talk a little bit more, maybe, about the technology sector because I think it's a really interesting case study, right? Because certainly, uh, it, you know, in our lifetimes, uh, and we're not all old just yet, um, but um, uh, the technology platforms that have developed uh, in the last few decades have led to um, huge uh, monopolistic uh, companies. Now, being in the media industry, in the digital media industry, we certainly see white-hot competition in, in certain parts of our business. But then if you look at the platforms um, out at Google in search and Facebook in social, um, you know, obviously Amazon in, in e-commerce and arguably increasingly Netflix in, in television content. These are giant, super dominant beasts, right? But I think one of the interesting questions is 
interesting questions here in terms of your, um, the, the thesis that you're putting forward is these have come from the sort of white-hot competitive markets for skills and capital uh, when they were growing up, uh, when these companies were started. So while they have become monopolistic, um, you know, or very, very dominant in their own particular areas, um, they grew out of very, very competitive markets. How do you square those two things? Sure. So one of the things that I uh, discuss in the, the book is that almost everyone starts as David and ends up becoming Goliath. And, you know, so pe people want the uh, young startup to do well. And what we've seen in the United States, and it, and it is true for many other advanced economies as well, is that there's been a collapse in startups, a collapse in new business, uh, new businesses being launched. And, and this predates the the uh, financial crisis. So it's not just that, that we had this sort of horrible event and something turned down. It's, it's worth and, pointing out here that uh, uh, there are less startups. There were fewer startups in Australia this year now than there were last year. Because we had this uh, pretty strong growth period um, uh, from about 2013, where there was a growth of there was there was more risky capital around. Uh, there were some funds set up by some smart people, and they raised. Um, I think, well, you know, in the, I think one year they managed to raise about a uh, billion dollars, which is, you know, tiny in U.S. terms, but um, it was at least something uh, in Australian terms, and they were able to fund a whole bunch of companies. But some of that now is starting to unwind. There are fewer companies, and the M&A, uh, which I know you talk about a lot in, in, uh, in the book too, M&A and activity, the deals are getting bigger, um, and, um, uh, you know, so you're starting to see this... Um, uh, this con this consolidation. So this is the interesting that you point out. That's you know like well we see probably uh, pretty intense competition in that startup sector in the U.S. Actually, the universe is shrinking. Uh, absolutely. So the the U.S. has been the most extreme example of this. Uh, half of all public companies have disappeared since 1997. Um, the, it's not as stark in uh, the U.K. or Germany, but it's similar in terms of a decline in publicly listed companies. And some of this is the corporate cannibalism, you know, where one company buys another. Um, some of it is a lack of IPOs, meaning that there are fewer uh, startups. Um, but what, what's, what's very interesting, uh, going back to the uh, startup issue, is that uh, if you remember in the late 90s, the Department of Justice in the United States went after Microsoft essentially for uh, being a monopolist because they control the operating system and then they were able to um, kill off Netscape effectively. And uh, they, they killed off a, a host of companies. So the fact that people use Microsoft Word today, uh, you know, they forget there was like Lotus Notes and WordPerfect and other things. And so it's it's very important if you can control an operating system where you can control essentially the access of people to your users. And uh, the, the, one of the reasons why Google exists is that um, the, the Microsoft was chastened after the antitrust trial and did not make uh, the um, the MSN uh, search at the time, the default search for Explorer. And so people could then set their search engines and uh, Google was the preferred one. And But right now, for example, Google's the default uh, for Android. Google pays to be the default for iPhone. Google pays to be the default for Firefox. And most people are just too lazy to change it. And so Google has 90% uh, market share globally in search. 
And because of that, they control whether you get your reviews from Google or Yelp, and they, you know, uh, and, and that's just one example. But also, they take they have snippets. So if you find, you know, the the famous example is CelebrityNetWorth.com, but there are many other things. And so, you know, the content creators bear the burden of digging, reporting, uh, creating. And then Google and Facebook get almost all the benefit from the the ad dollars and the the use. And so it's one of the greatest arbitrages uh, in in media history that almost all the economics uh, from the internet flows to the two platforms rather than to content uh, creators. Yeah, I mean it's certainly something that we uh, we live with uh, on a daily basis. Um, hourly uh, basis, hourly <laughs> basis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Dave. Dave will uh, will notice uh, the difference. Uh, your traffic on a day to day basis what, seems to be on a whim for, uh, sometimes. Oh, aggregators uh, such as Google and Facebook can be very picky in terms of what content they go and choose. And uh, I'd like to know their algorithms, how they are. Uh, they actually go and choose which is uh, something that should be uh, presented to their audience and what shouldn't be. But uh, I do find it very strange that sometimes. Uh, uh, if you go and write about a particular subject or, you, or you're uh, bullish or bearish about a certain area of the economy or a certain company, uh, there does tend to be uh, a bit of a tweak in the other uh, traffic. This is something I've noticed over the, uh, the time I've been here. <laughs> um, and that, that's a, that, that is a very key point. And Tim Berners-Lee, who created the World Wide Web, you know, with these sort of standards which allowed for, for browsers, um, he, he's argued that the, uh, the the internet itself is dying. Um, before it was a fairly anarchic free for all. You would have your blog, you'd link to me, I'd link to Davis, and you know, on we go. And and that was like a very rich ecosystem. And unfortunately, what we're now ending up with is essentially two companies that are, are dominating. In, in 2014, they passed 50%, and now it's close to 70% of all. Uh, sort of links, meaning that if you want to get to your content, you're going through Google or Facebook, which which means that you have two very powerful actors um, determining what gets seen or not. Now, some of it's personal in terms of they might make uh, very specific choices about sites, but others are algorithms and ultimately humans program algorithms and they might do so for their own own benefit. So it, it, it certainly, I think, is dire for the future of the internet. Let me ask you about um, this idea, though, about um, sort of the concept of corporate Darwinism, right? So that the more efficient, smart, smarter firms that use capital more efficiently and perhaps are more creative and agile are the ones that survive and grow and in the process take out their competitors. Um, but um, in some ways, isn't this a positive, isn't that a positive force? Because it's about using resources more efficiently. Um, and, you know, with the exception of, um, you know, a, a, a number of companies that you could probably count on, on, on both hands, um, there is, there's a cycle, there's a life cycle for companies. Um, and they kind of get to the end of their, their, their life and then so, something else comes and um, prov starts providing the service that they were providing in a more efficient way. So when you look at it this when you look at it on a longer time frame, um, isn't it kind of a natural sort of product of uh, early stage competition that you know, as you mentioned, David's go on to become Goliaths, but the winners are the ones who are using resources more most. Uh, most effectively and most efficiently, and often um, creating the best products um, because consumers choose to use them. So, isn't that um, isn't that a positive thing? 
so uh, there, there are quite a few things that you uh, said in there that I have to uh, take issue unpack. with or at least uh, unpack. And <laughs> I, I go into it in great detail in the book. Uh, but there's a so f- first of all, uh, there's there's a great book beyond my, my, my own, I hope, but it's called Scale by Jeffrey West. And what's very interesting is he talks about uh, the square cube law where, believe it or not, a hummingbird has as many heartbeats in its life as, as a whale. Right. And so w- what you find out is that there's some things that basically are, are scale invariant um, and uh, that there are quite a lot of other things, on the other hand, that are, are very much dictated by by the size. And so. Uh, if you think about uh, very large companies, you know, like the uh, or organizations, so whether it's the American Department of Defense or, or whether it's the Indian Railway or, or Walmart, when you have more and more people, you need people to manage the people, right? So there's the uh, you have Dunbar's number in the sense that there's a limited number of people that we can actually remember their names and faces and, and interact with. And so as companies get bigger, it? it's close to that. I think it's about 150. And what's interesting, obviously, is that as companies get much, much bigger, they tend to become less dynamic and less productive. And in the book Scale by Jeffrey West, he was looking at trying to find out whether some of these physical laws applied to companies. And what he found is that once you factor out inflation and the end, and the growth in the end market, so let's call it you know, the, the tech industry or the auto industry, which might have its own internal dynamics, what you find is these very large companies effectively stopped growing. And the only way that they grow is through acquiring smaller companies. You know, so that the, the, it's the smaller companies that drive productivity. And there's uh, some uh, groundbreaking research um, by uh, a few economists. Halty uh, Wenger was one, but showing that the most of the the growth in productivity tends to happen in the early stages of the, the lifespan of, of companies. And so. The, the productivity puzzle uh, really uh, is, is resolved in many ways by looking at the collapse in startups and how that then impacts uh, productivity. And so if you think about the big tech giants that you're talking about right now in terms of uh, white hot competition, what's very interesting is that the, the top sort of four companies have done close to 500 acquisitions over the last, I think it's five or six years. And so that's an awful lot of, of acquisitions. Uh, they, they do that one, to prevent competition. And they do that, too, because actually a, a lot of their own underlying uh, sort of uh, business, you know, the growth rates slow down and the way that you get bigger is essentially by acquiring competitors. And the role and, and place of Facebook and Google are was in, in no way, uh, or even Amazon, was in no way inevitable, right? It's not like they were so superior. Uh, you can specifically look at this in the case of Google. People seem to forget that Google bought um, DoubleClick, which was Google did search yeah. um, mm. advertising, right? Uh, DoubleClick did display advertising, right? So it, it, the reason why Google dominates online advertising is because the Department of Justice and the FTC in the United States basically are a do-nothing organizations that will approve any merger that's anti-competitive, and they were allowed to buy their main competitor. Like you can't take over an industry if you're able to take out your competitor. Um, so it's not just that Google had vastly superior technology when it when it came to online ads, they were able to buy their main competitor. Uh, if you look at Facebook, Facebook was able to buy Instagram and WhatsApp. Uh, once they bought WhatsApp, they're then able to, to tie all that information to specific accounts. So then 
Facebook becomes the, the global digital passport because now not only they know that your account's not fake because you've got a real mobile t- tied to that. And they know who your friends are. And so, you know, your, your uh, listeners um, in, in, in Sydney and, and elsewhere uh, probably know that you can't get a Bumble or a Tinder account. So like, you're basically not going to be doing much dating um, if you don't have a Facebook account. Right. That's mm-hmm. the only way you can sign into those things. Right. And that's just one of many uh, websites or um, apps that require a Facebook passport. So Facebook was able to consolidate its position and become a sort of digital passport of sorts through acquisitions. Uh, So a a lot of, I I do agree with you that, you know, competition is wonderful and that, uh, you know, some companies do have better products, but it wasn't necessarily Google or Facebook that that did it. They, They bought out competition and further entrench their position. Yeah, because they were able, they were they through their cash flows and their balance sheet, the, the, the bit of a head start that they were able to to, to um, put themselves in a position to start acquiring and uh, become that center of gravity. We're gonna take a quick break. And right after this, uh, we'll talk about some of the social consequences of this. Uh, it's another part, a fascinating part to, to, to Jonathan's book. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here with David Scott, and our guest is Jonathan Tepper of Variant Perception, uh, who's joining us on the line from London. So, look, um, Jonathan, one of the really interesting things that you talk about in here, in the book, is how this um, reality with oligopolies then has a number of very significant social effects. Um, Now, um, there is a part in the book where you're, you, there's a, you tell a story about you know presenting to clients in New York and they're flipping through your deck um, and uh, you're waiting for, to take some questions and you're sort of looking out over Central Park, uh, you know, very interesting life, etc. Right? Um, but they would stop on the sl- on the slide where they get to the wages, right? Uh, the apparent weakness, a very obvious weakness uh, in wages growth in, in the U.S. economy. And they would ask, where is the growth? Um, now, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with this uh, chart. If you go back several decades and look at the relationship between the unemployment rate and... Um, Good old Phillips curve. Yeah, the, the Phillips curve at work, right? So the un- unemployment rate and then uh, w- wages growth. So the very uh, close relationship, kind of symmetrical relationship between the unemployment rate coming down and wages growth um, starting to tick up. Um, now... Um, that sometimes is a lagging effect, um, but this time is doesn't seem to be happening. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Um, while so, Janet Yellen made the extraordinary admission uh, a few years ago that central banks may not fully understand the inflation picture. Everybody has a take on this. Uh, they range from the disinflationary nature of technology to the reduced bargaining power of workers. Um, who are concerned about their jobs being autom- automated. Um, but you have a pretty specific theory on this uh, in terms of the local dominance of certain companies in particular areas. Um, and maybe you can talk us through that. Uh, absolutely. So what one of the reasons why, or the main reason I started writing this book uh, was that there was a, a specific chart that was puzzling me. And I was looking at very perception we build leading economic indicators. So if you want to understand where economic growth in Australia is going to be, there are certain things that might give you a lead on that. If you want to understand where inflation might be in the United States, there are certain things that might give you a lead on that. And these are sound, uh, intuitive. They're based on a lot of academic research. We've done a lot of research of our own. So we have a specific indicator that leads uh, wage growth in the United States. 
And uh, it's, it's based on things like the quit rate. Are people leaving their jobs for other jobs? Generally, when they do that, they're, they're doing it because they're getting a higher pay elsewhere. And, uh, or, you know, the length of unemployment, meaning are, is a search happening quickly for jobs. And so all of those were improving dramatically over the last decade, um, you know, post-crisis. And we weren't really seeing almost any pickup in wages. And at first I was thinking, well, our, our leading indicator is very long leading therefore just you know be patient sit around and eventually those wages are going to catch up and that wasn't really happening and so it was puzzling me and for if you're an investor it matters an enormous amount because it's not just wages wages are the biggest uh, part of essentially the uh, economic pie in terms of you know where companies spend money and so if you can get that right then you're going to get earnings and uh, corporate profitability right and so to the extent that wages aren't going up, um, corporate profit margins are going to be elevated. And then obviously that matters, like what kind of PE do you pay for those uh, earnings if it's relatively stable and and, it's, and wages aren't going to go up? So I, I wanted to get to the bottom of that. And I started doing a lot of research and it became quite clear that the the reason why uh, company profitability was going up in was uh, due to the, the the lack of competition on the one side. Um, there's a fantastic paper uh, by Gustavo Grullon. That's G R U L L O N. He's a professor at Rice University. He did that with two colleagues, and it was uh, you know titled "Is the U.S. Becoming More Concentrated?" and he found that the uh, level of concentration was increasing in over two thirds of industries. That was uh, not the profitability is not coming from a higher return on assets, meaning they're getting more efficient and better, but rather that they have a lot more uh, pricing power, market power, so they can squeeze suppliers, they can squeeze workers, and that's what's driving it. And then separately, there's quite a lot of research that's been done on the uh, pay differentials in highly concentrated versus unconcentrated uh, markets. The areas that are very unconcentrated tend to be large cities where you have a lot of choices for employers. You know, uh, the, the the power there is much more stacked in favor of the worker. Uh, the areas that are uh, very concentrated tend to be uh, less urban and certainly more rural where you might have you know, one hog plant um, in rural North Carolina that is the employer, right, or something like that. And so there, there's an enormous amount of, of, of pricing power. And one of the interesting things is that uh, textbooks in economics tend to assume that we live in this sort of perfectly classical world where supply and demand curves just shift around seamlessly on paper. But in, in real life, as your listeners know, uh, you know, uh, people have partners, husbands and wives, and, you know, you have family relations and you might not be able to simply move, pick up and move, you know, at, at the drop of a hat. Um, and so there, there are significant uh, economic frictions and uh, Mortensen and uh, Pissaridis won a Nobel Prize for their work on these fiction. This on the frictions that mean that you know the world doesn't quite work the way the textbooks tell us and so th there, there's also a tremendous asymmetry in power between companies and workers so in the united states uh, and in many other countries uh, unionization levels have collapsed so you, you have uh, companies have become more concentrated while workers have become more dispersed and you have these uh, uh, sort of lack of mobility and frictions and all that together uh, creates a dynamic where the uh, power over workers is much greater on the, on the corporate side. And so that was really one of the, the interesting findings and uh, was this was start spur to starting writing the book. 
So, yeah, and then it comes down into, you know, just what David and I were talking about this before, you know, if you have a particular industry or company that supports like this is very much a case for the region for a regional town in Australia um, if you have a particular industry that supports a particular town obviously that company and how it thinks about wages uh, is enormously influential on um, you know not just the people who work for the company but for the community around it too right so you know for example more disposable income in the hands of the workers of, uh, at that company uh, is going to help um, uh, the rest of the town. But then you start to multiply that out through the, through the, the economy, um, and, uh, which I think is the, the interesting way to think about it. You sort of st start to look at that, um, that power and influence in terms of, uh, um, of, of uh, controlling companies. And I know you use the term uh, uh, oligopoly and monopoly somewhat in, in interchangeably. Um, in the book to describe the ability uh, of companies to sort of whether they are um, competing in, in a small group um, or uh, whether they're off on their own and clearly have like say for example Google with search that kind of dominance um, but the interesting thing there too Jonathan is that the you know we talk about populism and some of the societal effects of this and um, uh, how this feeds into the political dynamics uh, that we're seeing around the world, uh, and you see those as as connected. Absolutely. So, what, what, what's very uh, in interesting? Uh, you were talking about the economic terms, monopoly and oligopoly. Uh, one, one of the terms that uh, I use in in the book is monopsony. Um, so, it's the opposite of monopoly, where a monopoly is one seller, a monopsony is one buyer. And you know, the sort of canonical example is the one that you gave, where you have a one company town, whether that's a coal town in the U.S. with one company, or whether that's a mining town in in, in Australia. Um, and then, obviously. You have oligopolies, which are industries with you know three, four, five players, um, you know, versus a monopoly. And clearly, the oligopoly problem is where very small numbers of companies can tacitly collude or even outright collude on, on prices. So oligopolies function very much like monopolies. And th that really is you know the, one of the core problems for many industries. I argue th that w one of the reasons we've seen this rise in in populism is that as uh, workers are are losing out, and as income inequality is rising in many countries due to these incre the increase in concentration, the increase in corporate markups, and I have quite a lot of uh, charts in the last uh, chapter of the book on this. Uh, we're, we're seeing essentially levels of inequality that are in line with uh, the 1930s, and that was also a period where we had uh, rapidly rising uh, populism. And so uh, it, you, you generally don't have very good outcomes in society when you end up with extremes in, uh, in wealth uh, in inequality. And, and it's, income inequality is high, but wealth inequality is even greater. And uh, the, the term that they've used in, in America and, and has been exported in the end of the 19th century was the term robber baron. And that really comes from medieval Germany, where there were these uh, German lords. And if you wanted to cross their little bit of land, you had to pay them a toll to use their little road. But the, the, the problem was that the, the German lords weren't really doing anything to improve the road or to give you a better passage. It was just a straightforward transfer of wealth from the peasant to the lord. 
And as people go about their daily lives, many people don't own shares. Um, they may indirectly through through pensions, but uh, they, they don't really own them directly. And so as you go about your daily life, you're paying all these tolls and they're all flowing up to, you know, the the, the top sort of one and, and, and 10 percent. And so this creates greater income inequality. And, and I think that that is very much tied to the rise in populism. Whenever you see extremes in inequality, we've seen very big rises in, in populism. So the, the book, while it is an economic book, certainly has, I think, a, a lot to say politically. And earlier we were talking about urban versus rural in the United States, sort of the monopsonistic areas where you have fewer employee employers versus uh, the urban area, which is, you know, as a free for all in terms of choices generally. The, the map looks almost exactly like the map of Trump versus Hillary. Um, when you overlay it, yeah. and, and you realize that people are disaffected, that they they think things are bad, they know something's bad, but they don't know what the source of their ills is, and so they want some change. So, so what about solutions, um, though, John? Like, so Jonathan, like, so, so what, what what do we need here? Stronger regulators. Um, I have suspected that antitrust might be a word we hear a lot. Um, starting from next year, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but but what do we do? Like, do we do we stand around being disappointed about this and um, sort of reflect on the failures of capitalism, or are there things that that, that should be done that could start to um, you think redress some of these imbalances that you identify in the book? Sure. So I I am a extremely pro-capitalist. Uh, I think capitalism is a wonderful thing. Uh, the, the book is really a, sort of a love letter to capitalism uh, and a uh, complaint that we're not seeing an, enough of it. And G.K. Chesterton uh, is one of my favorite writers, uh, very uh, witty and uh, could, could write extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily quotable sentences everywhere, said the problem with capitalism is not that there are too many capitalists, but there are too few. And and I think that the, uh, the goal is to increase competition, you know, to have more startups, to have a more dynamic economy. So we need more capitalism. The question is, of course, how do we get there? Um, I do think that antitrust is an extremely important part of this. Uh, we have to make sure, one, uh, prospectively, that we're not uh, allowing more mergers that would co further concentrate industries. I think that in some cases, uh, you have to reverse previous mergers that uh, created anti-competitive situations. And then one of the things that we haven't touched on very much in this podcast, but is extremely important, is eliminating uh, excessive regulation. So one of the, the like we talked about this uh, a little with Moody's, where regulation prevents uh, new entrants really in the ratings agencies. But there are many other industries where excessive regulation prevents uh, new entrants. And obviously regulation is important. None of us wants to drink poison water. We want our children to you know be healthy and safe. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm, I'm not a sort of a an anti-state uh, person. But what I do point out in, in the book is that when you have uh, an explosion of regulation and then there's essentially revolving doors between the regulators and the companies that are regulated, it, really these act as very strong barriers to entry. And so reducing the problems of concentration is not purely an antitrust issue. It also ties in very specifically with uh, regulation and with uh, essentially good governance, meaning you don't want to have necessarily crony capitalism where um, if, if you can be close to the regulator, you'll, you'll be fine. And uh, in Australia, you, you could argue that you've certainly seen that in the banking sector where you know the, the big banks – 
have been very, very tight with APR and ASIC. Um, smaller banks haven't, and therefore there's been this in- ineluctable drive to um, buy competitors, and then you get a premium essentially, um, you know, and, or an implicit subsidy uh, for for being big. And so that's like one industry. Well, well, the the interim report from the Royal Commission pointed to exactly this. Um, rather than um, and this was back in September when there, you know, his first report, his first sort of take on everything that's happened, he was lighter on the banks that, uh, that, than expected. And in fact, when that report came out, the shares of most of the financials index went up sort of two, two and a half percent, I think. Um, Initially, they didn't last long, though. No. <laughs> um, uh, but but uh, the, where, he, where he went to first was the failures of the, the, the regulators. Um, and, and to point out that um, that you know, not enough was was done to to call out and punish, and even you know, a, a twenty thirty million dollar fine to a to to an Australian bank, you know. Um, yeah, the enforceable undertakings that were, that ASIC sorry was uh, was issuing. No, we're talking absolute pocket change for you know behemoths that make you know billions a quarter. Uh, so not really a deterrent to go and change behaviours, and I'm glad it was called out in the uh, the interim report. Um, okay, um, look, um, John, fascinating book, um, but um, we'll talk quickly about global markets um, because I'm really curious to hear uh, your take on everything at the moment. Um, everything's suddenly become very interesting, certainly in the last eight weeks or so, um, and we keep coming back to it on, on the show here. Um, uh, but, you know, China slowing down, uh, uh, you know, quantitative tightening from various central banks. How are you seeing things? Uh, what are the big themes for you? Sure. So one of the uh, – well, there are two key themes really for the year that Variant Perceptions had uh, since the beginning of the year. One was the China slowdown. So while people are, have been waking up to it recently, um, this was uh, very evident from the beginning of the year. And uh, much of this was tied to the uh, tightening of monetary policy in China. So China, for whatever reason, seems to only have two modes. One is step on the accelerator as hard as possible, and the other is step on the brakes, um, r- rather than a perhaps more uh, nuanced or, or moderated approach to growth. So in 2016, uh, late 2015, early 2016, China had been slowing down. They then decided to step on the accelerator. And so you had, uh, you know, M1 was growing at 25%. They added 30% GDP percent points uh, of debt. And so that, that was obviously unsustainable. So then they went back to the stepping on the brakes. And, uh, you know, fast forward to 2018, and that's really what we've been seeing. And so that was showing up in all the leading indicators that variant perception has for China. And China is a, a major driver of, of global demand, whether it's for capital goods, whether it's for commodities. And so that was going to then have an impact on uh, China's neighbors, on Australia, and, you know, in terms of commodity prices, whether it's copper, iron ore. Um, and you, you can certainly see that in, in Germany in terms of the export of capital goods. So that's been one of the key themes, and that's played out pretty well. Um, I would argue that it's still ongoing in the sense that uh, the leading indicator for variant, we've not seen an upturn in the China leading index. So I think that there's more more pain ahead. Uh, obviously, uh, the variant clients will get the updates as the data changes. So we're agnostic. You know, we're, we're not bullish or bearish. We just follow the indicators. So it'll be very interesting to see how that evolves. Um, the, the second uh, theme that, that we've had, and I think that it explains a lot of the behavior that we've seen in stock markets, is that some very specific signals were telling us that you wanted to favor uh, defensives versus cyclicals. And the cyclicals 
uh, it did very, very well up until the end of January, the beginning of February. And uh, after that period, uh, what we've seen across the board in the United States and in, and in Europe has been that uh, if you looked at cyclical sectors tend to be materials, industrials, often technology fits into that, um, depending on what kind of technology, whether it's software or hardware, um, specifically hardware generally. Um, you know, semiconductors are very cyclical. And then on the defensive side, what you generally have are sort of consumer staples, for example, some healthcare. You know, these pe- people demand these things in good economies and, and bad economies, you know. Um, so w- what we've actually seen is that uh, consumers, uh, sorry, cyclicals have done very poorly this year relative to staples and uh, defensive sectors. And we, we highlighted both themes to, to clients. And some of that's driven by the fact that um, we've seen this quantitative tightening going on. You've seen higher bond yields. Um, higher oil prices. So there are certain things that generally uh, lead to uh, underperformance of cyclicals versus defenses, you know, just tighter money in general. And that's one of the things that we've seen. I think uh, those trades have moved quite a bit. So, uh, you know, in fact, they've now been pricing in some of the growth slowdown that we've seen, and they've certainly been pricing in uh, higher uh, yields and higher oil prices. Um, what will be very interesting to see, one thing that we've seen over the last couple of weeks has been a deterioration in market health in the United States. So one of the things that we, we track quite closely is whether you're getting a lot more new lows or new highs, uh, whether you're seeing uh, an improvement in the advanced decline of stocks. And we, we've certainly seen a very big shift in, in market leadership and health. And that that often happens uh, at the beginning of pretty big sell-offs in bear markets. Um, I'm not, not forecasting a bear market, but certainly it's one of the things that, from a purely technical standpoint, um, you know, the was was warning you that danger was about to come. Um, obviously, we've seen a rally yesterday and today. It'll be interesting to see how this evolves. Um, the situation could clear itself up, uh, but. Otherwise, obviously, you're, you're in a much uh, heightened risk scenario given poor market health. David, uh, it's, everything continues to whip around at the moment, um, and uh, we kind of don't know what we're walking into. One, one trading session to the next, never mind one day. Yes. It's been interesting. Oh, but uh, in the last uh, last couple of sessions, it looks like the uh, the world is suddenly good again. Um, I do know that that actually coincides with China's stock market uh, having quite a reasonable bounce, just like China's stock market actually went in uh, and led the uh, the global downturn the uh, the, the end of January this year. So, um, I think that may be having a, a bit of influence, from my opinion, uh, particularly uh, in Australia and particularly the Australian dollar and the like. Uh, but I agree that uh, the yields are definitely one that's, uh, that everyone is watching. Uh, and if this, uh, no, this risk on period we've seen in the last couple of sessions, I've noticed that uh, 10 years in the US has started to go and creep back up to 3.15% again. Uh, we got payrolls out tomorrow night. Uh, and on, ADP was, AD, uh, ADP was, was very strong. strong. Yeah. We've got uh, some very, very strong wages, uh, no data that came out uh, last night as well in the States. So uh, to say that, uh, no, this is over, uh, I think is foolish. Yeah. Um, Okay, look, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been Jonathan Tepper of Variant Perception. Uh, Jonathan, um, once again, congratulations on the book, The Myth of Capitalism, uh, which is out this month. Uh, And thanks so much for joining us on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, If we can, we'll uh, definitely get you back next year. This has been a fascinating chat and... um, 
Uh, it'll be great to see uh, where we're up to in terms of continued market dominance in various industries uh, around the world. Um, but look, uh, great book and um, absolutely uh, plenty of food for thought in there for anybody interested in economics, markets, companies, people, society, politics. It's, uh, it's well worth a read. Okay, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is produced by Rick Salter. Don't forget, we're at the Ivy Live on the 27th of November. Tickets are 50 bucks. You can find us on Humanitics. Uh, just look up Business Insider and uh, come along and have some drinks, canapes, and a good chat with us. Um, now, uh, you can find us on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We're on Twitter individually, too. So it's myself, Paul Colgan. Uh, David Scott, who's at Scotty, and you can find Jonathan Tepper at jtepper2. Um, so you can come on there and, uh, and have a yak to us online too. Okay, uh, find the show under Devils of Details uh, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.